Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and as always, we are talking Colorado true crime stories. So a little mention here, you might have heard the update yesterday, but I did want to let you know that the first Patreon episode is up and ready for you to listen to if you're interested. Patreon is $5 a month. You can get to that either from patreon.com slash altitude crime, or you can go to altitudecrime.com and click the Crime Clan Patreon page. So we are way, way, way overdue for a historic case. So the case that I'm covering today, I actually mentioned all the way back in episodes one and two. So a year later, I'm finally getting around to this case. So we covered in episode one and two, the kidnapping of Adolf Coors III. Now, when Coors was kidnapped, that was actually a time frame in the 60s that that wasn't as common. Kidnapping was not really as lucrative for criminals anymore because FBI and law enforcement could often find kidnappers so quickly. Kidnapping for ransom was a lot more common in the 1930s, and that's when today's case took place. Between 1930 and 1933, there were 18 high-profile and high-ransom kidnappings, including today's case about Charles Betcher II. So let's get into it. So a little disclaimer before we get into today's episode, because we do have a family that named multiple people Charles. So I don't want that to be confusing for you guys as I go through the story. So for Charles Betcher, who is the grandfather of the victim in this case, I'm going to refer to him just as Charles. And then Charles Betcher II, who is our kidnappee in this case, I'll refer to as Charlie because that's actually something that a lot of people in his life called him. On February 12, 1933, Charles Betcher II was arriving home to his residence at 777 Washington Street with his wife, Anna Lou. They were arriving home just before midnight as they were coming home from a dinner party. 31-year-old Charlie would get a surprise when he opened the garage door and went to get out of the car as two armed men had actually been hiding inside the garage waiting for their arrival home. Charlie was approached at gunpoint and taken out of the garage and put into the back seat of a Ford V8. His wife, Anna Lou, was then given a ransom note that asked for $60,000 in exchange for Charlie's safe return. Charlie's wrists were bound and tape was put over his eyes to bind them shut. Now, Charlie came from an extremely prominent Colorado family. Charlie was the grandson of Charles Betcher. Now, if you spent any time in Denver, this name may seem familiar. There's the Betcher Concert Hall, the Betcher Scholarship, which provides full rides to Colorado four-year universities. There's the Betcher Foundation, which is also a charitable organization. And in addition to other work, they provide additional funds for underrepresented students that attend Colorado universities. And of course, there's the Betcher Mansion. Charles Betcher was a German native who moved to the U.S. in 1869. He and his brother Herman first started working in a hardware store in Cheyenne, Wyoming. 
1870, Herman actually bought the business and changed the name to H. Betcher and Company. Part of the deal included another store in Greeley, Colorado, which Charles moved to to begin running the store. The business continued to grow and another store was built in Fort Collins. In 1872, when Charles arrived in Fort Collins to start managing this additional branch, he met Fanny Augusta Cowan and she was visiting Colorado from Kansas. Fanny and Charles were then married in April of 1874. And once the couple married, the family moved to Boulder to open another hardware store. As the town of Boulder grew, so did the store, as well as Charles's fortune. Charles actually ended up getting into a dispute with his business partner, William P. McKinney. McKinney was also Herman's father-in-law, so I'm sure that got really complicated really fast. Charles opted to sell his share of the business and instead opened a competing store. The store that he opened was located just one block away. Charles made some really brilliant business decisions from this point out. By 1876, he had bought the stock of blasting powder from all of his rivaling stores. This meant he had a monopoly on a very important segment of the hardware business in Boulder because blasting powder was a coveted mining supply. In addition to growing his businesses, Charles had also started to grow his family. His son Claude was born in 1875. In 1877, Charles bought a new building for the hardware store at the southwest corner of Broadway and Pearl, and the store opened at this location in February 1879. According to Jefferson County, Colorado's website article about Charles Betcher, this hardware store was called, quote, one of the handsomest in the state and the largest hardware store in Colorado, unquote. This building has since had its exterior remodeled, and it is now the haagen ice cream store on Pearl Street Mall. During the 1870s, a silver boom had started in Leadville, and on March 1879, Charles bought a lot in Leadville on Harrison Street to try to cash in on the ongoing silver rush. The store almost immediately started grossing $40,000 a month, which in today's money would be about $688,000. In 1884, Charles went on to buy a store in Denver. This was also around the time that the hoitier areas of Denver started to build up. In the 1890s, Denver's Capitol Hill was starting to gain notoriety, and this is where prosperous locals started to build their homes. Also at this time in 1892 is when the Brown Palace would be built, which would be a really luxurious hotel that's still there today. Charles built a residence at 1901 Grant Street around this time, and this area would start to become known as Millionaire's Row. During this time in 1890, Charles and Fanny would also have a daughter named Ruth. In 1890, after kind of rethinking the hardware store and kind of looking at a retirement-like situation, Charles launched the Great Western Sugar Company and the Portland Cement Company. He actually donated cement to build the Laureate Trail from 1911 to 1914. This trail led to Lookout Mountain, which would become a popular summertime tourist destination and also a popular place for the Betchers to spend their time. In 1915, Charles and Fanny separated and Charles started to stay at the residence that they had built on Lookout Mountain. 
And I had to add this in because it's just kind of a hilarious antidote. But in Geraldine Bean's book, Charles Betcher, A Study in Pioneer Western Enterprise, she talks about one of his adventures on the mountain. So her book says, quote, Having built this elegant mansion on Lookout Mountain in 1917, Charles Betcher often drove the Lariat Trail to Golden and Denver, which involved negotiating a series of switchbacks, hairpin turns, and horseshoe curves on a steeply graded gravel roadway, hundreds of feet above Clear Creek. In the summer months, Charles traveled this route twice a day. On one particularly beautiful morning in early June 1919, his attention was distracted momentarily by the loveliness of the day, and he allowed his sleek gray roadster to gather speed dangerously as it descended the mountainside. Startled, he slammed on the brakes, causing the briefcase on the rear shelf to topple forward and strike him on the back of the head. He lost consciousness briefly, during which time the car left the road and was impaled on a huge boulder overhanging a sheer cliff. Summoning help, he had the vehicle pulled away back to the road, found it relatively undamaged, and proceeded to the office, seemingly unperturbed by the narrow escape. To Charles, the automobile was a challenge. He liked fast cars and was impatient with associates who criticized his driving habits. Invitations to ride with him were graciously declined whenever possible, unquote. Charles would eventually leave Lookout Mountain and buy a suite at the Brown Palace and lived there. Then in 1922, he actually became joint owner of the Brown Palace. As Charles's son, Claude, started to grow up, he started to diversify the Betcher family holdings. They got into industries such as packing, mining, railroads, banking, real estate, utilities, and charitable ventures. Claude married De Ellen McMurdy, and they had Charles II in September 1901 in Denver. So as I said earlier, Charles Betcher II was affectionately called Charlie by his friends and family. Charlie graduated from Yale and went on to marry Anna Lou Piggott, who was a Montana-raised beauty queen. The couple ended up having two little girls together. Charlie became a banker and broker and was a partner at Betcher, Newton, and Company. And he also had some involvement in the Ideal Cement Company. When Charlie was abducted, a search took place for him in Denver that drew 4,000 people, a combination of both authorities and concerned citizens alike. Denver law enforcement worked what leads they had, but really had no luck in anything that pointed to where Charlie could be. The Betchers actually started to speak with the kidnappers directly, and they exchanged a total of 13 letters. This really drove a wedge between law enforcement and the Betcher family because it kind of undermined what law enforcement was trying to do, but the Betchers just felt that it was the best way to get Charlie back and get Charlie back safely. In the midst of this, Colorado legislature had tried to get a bill going that would make a ransom kidnapping a capital offense, but it was halted when Anna Lou. Charlie's wife expressed her concern that passing such a bill could affect the chances of her husband coming back and of her husband coming back unharmed or even alive. The FBI also got involved three days after Charlie was kidnapped. In their communications with the kidnappers, they had told the Betchers to put a personal ad in the Denver newspapers when they were ready to negotiate. According to Lisa Lindell's article for South Dakota State University, 
The personal ad that they put in the paper read, quote, ready to come home, Mabel, unquote. The Betchers paid a $60,000 ransom, which would be just over $1 million in today's money. Charlie was released by his kidnappers on March 1st, 1933. His captors woke him up at midnight and left him blindfolded in the Stockyards District of Denver, which is a field about 20 minutes northeast of town. He managed to walk to a drugstore and called his family from there. Charlie had been with his captors for a total of 17 days, but he had come home relatively unscathed. He had a really bad cold, and he had really sore eyes from the tape and blindfolding over the course of those 17 days. Once news spread that he had been found and he was headed back to his residence, a hundred people had waited outside his home to watch for his safe return. Now, ironically enough, his captors had actually let go of him before they had the ransom in hand. Authorities would find out later that the kidnappers had been worried that neighbors around their hideout would start to get suspicious and blow their cover. So they decided it was time to just get Charlie off of their hands. But since his son was safe, Claude Betcher decided to still pay the ransom, but with the police in tow. The Betcher chauffeur, a family friend whose name was Reuben J. Morse, and two private detectives drove to the location specified by the kidnappers in order to exchange money. This location was on Highway 81, about 20 minutes north of the Denver city limits. The group stopped at a bridge where the money was thrown over into the dry creek bed below it. The police were in the area and were watching the drop. And when two kidnappers came to pick up the money, they pursued them but lost them. So while they had been in close proximity to the kidnappers, they did not have any identities to go off of. But it wouldn't be long before Denver police got a tip just a few days after Charlie was home safe that identified his kidnappers. And the ringleader of them was Vern Sankey. Sankey was also known as Rio Vern Sankey, and he was born in 1890. Sankey became known as a kidnapper, gunman, bootlegger, and gambler. He began a life of crime when he was actually laid off and he took up gambling in order to get some funds coming in. Prior to the 1930s, Sankey ran a gambling hall and also was a really successful bootlegger. He actually was in Canada in Winnipeg and he started sending booze across the border in 1923. He would run booze across the Canadian border directly into Denver actually. Sankey at one point was also suspected of being involved in two really large bank robberies in Canada in 1931, but he was never arrested in connection with these. Sankey would actually recruit his team of kidnappers while living in Winnipeg. His team included Gordon Francis Alcorn, Fern May Sankley, Alvina Ruth Buller, and Arthur Youngberg. They all essentially met when they were employed by the Canadian National Railroad. Or at least that's how Gordon and Arthur and another man that we will talk about later in the story, Ray Robinson, met. Fern May Sankley was Sankley's wife and Elvina Ruth Kohler was her sister. He would also later link up with Carl Pierce, who lived in Denver. It was Sankey and Alcorn who were the two armed men in Charlie's garage that night. Once they had him in the Ford... They took him to South Dakota, where they held him on a ranch that was owned by Fern, Sankey's wife. 
the ranch was located along the Crow Creek Indian Reservation and was near both Kimball and Mitchell, South Dakota. They put Charlie in the cellar bedroom of the ranch house where he was blindfolded for the entire time. And it would be Alcorn and Youngberg that would be tasked with guarding him over the course of the 17 days. But Charlie was smart. He left evidence at the ranch house while he was there. He made sure to get as many of his fingerprints on the walls as he could. After the group was chased by police after the money drop for the ransom money, they then hid out in a Greeley warehouse. They then split up and planned to meet back at the ranch at a later date. But before they did that, they split up the money. $32,000 was given to Sankey and Fern, $11,000 went to Youngberg, and $17,000 went to Alcorn. Once they all did get back to the ranch, a lot of them buried what money they had gotten on the property. Alcorn said he buried $15,000, Sankey said he buried $25,000, and Youngberg buried $9,360. We know this very specific amount because it was the only amount that actually was dug up by police when they later searched the property. Now knowing the identity of the kidnapper, Anna Lou, Charlie's wife, actually gave police a description of Sankey that was really, really accurate. She pegged him at around 42 years old, five foot seven inches, between 150 and 160 pounds. And she said that he had a sandy complexion with round eyes. She even was able to describe what he was wearing, his cap, his tweed coat, and describe the handkerchief that he was using as a mask. Now, before we get into what investigators had to do to catch these criminals, let's talk a little bit about what's going on overall in the U.S. with the FBI and overall criminal legislation. This was a really pivotal time in the history of law enforcement in the U.S. Franklin D. Roosevelt became president within weeks of Charlie's abduction, and his administration started a national anti-crime campaign. While the FBI had started in 1908, this is when they would really start to gain a lot of notoriety, and it would be the beginning of Edgar J. Hoover's government men, or G-men, as they became known. This phrase was coined in the arrest of George Machine Gun Kelly. In addition to a number of other high-profile crimes, on July 22, 1933, Kelly kidnapped oil millionaire Charles Urschel of Oklahoma City, and he asked for a $200,000 ransom for him. That would be about $3.4 million in today's money. This crime was a really big deal because the victim was a really good friend of Roosevelt's. According to Lisa Lindell's article for South Dakota State University, it was Machine Gun Kelly's arrest that gave the G-men their name when he exclaimed, quote, don't shoot G-men, unquote. In short, during this time frame, the FBI tackled big cases and then their successes were really hardly pushed out to the media. At this time, law enforcement would start to be idealized the same way that bank robbers, kidnappers, and bootleggers of the day had. Also during this time, the wheels of legislation had started to turn. The kidnapping and death of the Lindbergh baby resulted in the creation of the federal kidnapping bill. Now, this applied to victims who had been taken across state lines in the midst of a kidnapping. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Lindbergh baby crime here in a minute. A week after the bill was passed, Haskell Bond was abducted. This was on June 30th, 1932. 
Haskell was a 20-year-old and the son of a refrigerator manufacturer in St. Paul, Minneapolis. He actually got kidnapped as he was walking out to his car, leaving his home to go to work. He was literally right outside his house. Haskell was held for six days and released unharmed in exchange for a ransom of $12,000. There were no initial arrests in this case, but Sankey and his team were actually found to be the culprits later on. They had held Haskell in a basement of a Minneapolis residence that Sankey had. Charlie's kidnapping would actually be the first to happen since the bill was passed and the first time that the bill could be applied since Charlie had been taken across state lines to South Dakota while he was with his captors. Colorado did end up passing new legislation after Charlie was released, and this changed the maximum sentence for kidnapping from seven years up to all the way up to the death penalty. But this legislature did not deter criminals. Kidnaps for ransom continued through the 1930s, and there were 48 of them from 1933 to 1936. While the hunt for all of Charlie's kidnappers would take a while, a few of the culprits were arrested pretty immediately, just within a few months after he was released. The tip that led police to the group came from a person who had had drinks with a man named Carl Pierce. He had bragged about the crime while he was intoxicated. Additionally, the group was also found out through one of the copycat crimes. Sankey had been accused of two other high-profile kidnappings. The first was in June 1933, and that was the kidnapping of William Ham Jr. He was the brewery heir to the Theodore Ham's Brewing Company, which makes Ham's beer. Well, no longer makes Ham's beer. Miller bought them out a few years back. And then he was also accused of the January 1934 kidnapping of Edward Brimmer. He was also the son of a St. Paul brewer, and that was of the man who owned Schmidt Beer, which, if you're wondering, is now a contract brewer for Paps. But it turns out Sankey was not involved in either of these. It was later proved that the Ma Barker Alvin Capri gang did both of these kidnappings and not Sankey and his team. But regardless, the information from those helped lead investigators to Sankey and his kidnapping crew. Law enforcement descended on the South Dakota ranch on March 6, 1933. And on March 9th, the kidnapper's car, the Ford V8, was found in a ranch in a dry creek bed. On March 15th, Charlie was taken out to the ranch to confirm that it was where he was held. He was able to confirm both his accommodations at the ranch as well as pinpoint that while he was being driven back to Denver, he was able to take off his blindfold for just a moment and saw that they were passing the Torrington, Wyoming Railroad Depot. So that also confirmed that they were going in that direction from South Dakota. Police found Youngberg at a neighbor's house when they were canvassing the area and arrested him on March 29th, 1933. Youngberg tried to commit suicide after his arrest, but was unsuccessful. He ended up being convicted for the bond kidnapping that the Sankey team had also pulled off and was sentenced to 25 years in jail. He served his sentence in the Stillwater Penitentiary in Minnesota. Carl Pierce was then arrested in Denver. This Denver insurance salesman was actually the one who typed the ransom notes, and he was convicted for conspiracy to kidnap and received 26 years. Ferd and her sister Alvina were also arrested, but Alvina Kohler's charges ended up getting dismissed. 
We'll talk a little bit more about what happened with Fern Sankey here in a little bit. Sankey actually said that he came back to the ranch while police were there. They had stayed there for about two weeks investigating the area. And he snuck in and actually dug up some of the money that he had buried and went undetected. In April 1933, a man named Ray Robinson was arrested. And he was arrested based on some tips from the Winnipeg police. And he was captured in Dauphine by the RCMP. He had been involved in the Haskell Bond kidnapping, but from what I gather, he was not involved in Charlie's kidnapping. He was extradited to Minnesota, and he was convicted in the Bond kidnapping and sent to 25 years in prison. At this point, that left Sankey and Alcorn, and they were two of the most wanted criminals in the U.S. They ended up being at large for around 10 months. Police eventually arrested Sankey at a Chicago barber shop on January 31st, 1934, and he did not resist arrest. Sankey had also at one point been a suspect in the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby that we talked about a little bit earlier, and police questioned him on this before they sent him via train to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. was the baby of Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator. He was taken from his second floor nursery in the Lindbergh home on March 1st, 1932, about a year prior to Charlie's kidnapping. Unfortunately, the baby's body was then found on May 12th, 1932, and he was deceased. There were some links between the Lindbergh kidnapping and Sankey. There was some handwriting on some of the ransom notes that was similar between the two cases. Charlie and Charles Lindbergh were actually friends, so it made investigators wonder if he was kind of like rolling through like all these people's friends. And like I said, it happened just one year before he kidnapped Charlie. But in questioning, Sankey seemed really offended that they would assume that he would be as low as to abduct a baby. He was insistent that he would only kidnap a man. And he was eventually cleared by the FBI and was found not to be in connection with the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Investigators arrested Alcorn the following day. Alcorn was in Chicago as well and going under the alias Walter Thomas. He also did not resist arrest. They were sent to South Dakota for trial. And for additional security, they were held in the state prison in Sioux Falls. Both were held in solitary confinement and both had bonds of $100,000. Upon searching Sankey's apartment after his arrest, there was a letter found that was assumed to be for Claude Betcher, and it explained how, since the authorities had been notified in the first kidnapping, that he was threatening to kidnap Charlie again. On February 7th, 1934, Sankey said he would plead guilty to the kidnapping charges, but he would never see a courtroom. He hung himself the following day on February 8th, 1934. He used a couple of neckties strung over his prison bunk in order to kill himself. The day after Sankey's body was found, on February 9th, Elkhorn pleaded guilty. This came just one week after his arrest. Elkhorn was sentenced to life for the kidnapping of Charlie and was in prison just two days later starting his sentence. In September 1934, he was moved to the newly redesigned and reopened Alcatraz. He started to feel unsafe there, and he cooperated with investigators in the trial against Fern Sankey in hopes that he would be able to leave Alcatraz and go back to Leavenworth to serve out the rest of his sentence. Fern Sankey went through two different trials. She was first tried in May 1934 for the bone kidnapping, and she was actually acquitted in this case. 
And then she was tried again in October 1934 for Charlie's kidnapping. And this is the one that Alcorn testified in. And she got dismissed in this situation as well. I might have those backwards where I found in sources... It says once she was dismissed and once she was acquitted, but depending on which source you see, it swaps the two. But regardless, Fern served no time for her parts in the kidnappings. So unlike our story of Adolf the III, Charlie was blessed with the fact that he went back to his family unharmed and life resumed as normal. <laughs> In 1937, the Betcher Foundation was established, and that's that charitable organization that the Betcher family created. In 1940, the Betcher School for Crippled Children opened. Charles Betcher, the patriarch, died at age 96 in 1948, and then nine years later, Charlie's dad, Claude, died in 1957. Unfortunately, in 1941, Anna Lou, Charlie's wife, committed suicide. She'd actually had a lot of prolonged health issues, and this kind of seemed like her way out of having to continue to deal with those health issues. She ended up shooting herself in the head. After Anna Lou's death, Charlie remarried a few years later to May Scott Foster. He had two daughters from his marriage to Anna Lou, but never had any more children and no sons. So the Betcher name was actually not carried on at that point with a son. Charlie died of a heart attack in 1963, after years of failing health. The home that Charlie was abducted from is no longer there. It was torn down to build a high-rise apartment building. So guys, I only really have one big thought on this case. I think because I've kind of inserted more throughout the story. And a lot of times these historical features tend to be a bit more buttoned up. We tend to know a bit more about them at the end of the day. So musing number one. So my thought on this has to revolve around the media. And I think this is a really interesting time in the coverage of criminal cases in the media. So the interesting thing about this point is... These were really highly covered cases, but they often revolved around the higher echelon of society. So it makes you wonder, was there really as much crime overall? Because you weren't hearing about crime with normal people. You were only hearing it with these super wealthy people that were being targeted by gangs. And I think we can kind of echo some other patterns like that in the media covering law enforcement and criminal cases. We know there's things like if a white woman goes missing, they're most likely to be covered over maybe somebody else of a different background. There can be a lot of villainization of spouses and things like that. So I think this was kind of the beginning of the downfalls of the media following criminal cases because it is very sensational. And this really was a time where the media was really becoming interested in reporting things like this. So it really kind of started that entire relationship with crime investigations and the media. So just an interesting thing to think about. I think there's a lot of places where the media is helpful with cases. It helps keep cases out in the open, out in the limelight, reminds people that things are happening. But there also can be downfalls to that too, especially in a 24-hour news cycle. Well, guys, that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you can reach me on social media at Altitude Crime Podcast on Instagram and Altitude Crime on Facebook and Twitter. Please make sure you follow or subscribe. 
gut source materials on altitudecrime.com as well as the link to Patreon shop and suggest a crime. So I haven't gotten any suggestions in a while. So go ahead and send me a few. Let's uh, cover some different things. Well, thank you so much for spending part of your week with me. And I cannot wait to talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 54, The Kidnapping of Charles Betcher II, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.